when I think of carefree summer days, I think of Richard Dreyfus for sure. Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Cinenation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cinenation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And last last week, we finished off our month of Stanley Kubrick movies. And this month, we're going into a new genre. But let's kind of briefly kind of recap Kubrick month. So, like, it was a big month last month, Thomas. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and also, too, Tom, Thomas is a little under the weather right now. So. Yeah. Apologies. Maybe you like it. Maybe you like <laughs> Maybe the way you like it sounds. It. Maybe you're like, Thomas, keep that voice the entire time. I, I just really the thought show. the podcast could use some like Tom Waits flavor. <laughs> Was it in the heart or, or heart of the Saturday night or whatever? Mm-hmm. We're going to start doing that. Which 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 version of Tom Waits would you be? I'm like, I'm like second two albums when he like started losing his voice. Yeah, starting to get into. OK, starting to wrap. OK, um, so, yeah. So last month we talked about Kubrick. It was a big month, as I said we probably missed some things along the way. I know one thing I wanted to bring up is that like, I think we talked about how Kubrick, he, he, we tend to reuse or use different people every time. It felt like for the most part, it was like, he never had really the same star. Mm-hmm. Maybe Peter, Peter Sellers and Kirk Douglas in the first part, but he kind of went on his own way later on in his career, but he used a few character actors a lot of the time. Like he, we talked about how like Philip Stone, who is like, uh he's alex's father in a clockwork orange mm-hmm. he's um he's uh lord bullington's like right hand person or whatever in barry Lyndon, and then he's delbert grady uh in in the shining and then you have joe turkle who was in the killing briefly but then was in pads of glory as one of the soldiers who uh was executed and then he was also in uh he's lloyd in the shining so weirdly he had these kind of weird character actors that kind of popped up throughout his career um but yeah, I've been thinking a lot about Kubrick stuff. It's it's there's been so much debate on our TikTok about 2001 being a good movie or or a bad movie because <laughs> uh, everyone just couldn't understand it is what it was. And it was actually kind of funny to see how the reaction on TikTok, weirdly enough, was like the same reaction of it in 1968 when it came out. Hmm. It was like everyone either loved it, thought it was a masterpiece, or this was terrible, boring, tedious, self indulgent, dull, etc. So not much has changed. <laughs> And f- over 50 years. Um, but yeah, we're doing something like a- after doing Kubrick, these kind of cold, distant movies. And I feel like this month, everything's more warm with the movies we're covering. And that's because we're talking about summer movies. And it's August. Summer is winding down, but it's the last kind of prime months for summer. And so, Thomas, when you when you think of summer movies, what do you think of? I think of, of coming of age movies for a lot of them. I feel yeah. like summer is a time that's always interesting to check in on kids, especially because like being in school is not necessarily very uh, interesting. Um, yeah. You've really got like dead poet society and that's just about it. But yeah, I think about kind of coming of age movies. I think about young people being out for the summer friendships. I think about the movie we're doing today. I think about uh, the movie now and then, uh, you mm-hmm. know, my girl, these kind of movies that are like, Oh, I had this one friendship this one summer and it didn't, it might not have endured, but it was so formative for me, you know? Yeah. I, I feel like, I think Stand By Me is kind of, which we're talking about today, is like very much the, I think a template for like every like young kid coming of age movie mm-hmm. afterwards. It's like we're talking about Sandlot later this month and like 
when you look at Sandlot, you look at Sandlot, I mean, there's a lot of similarities where it's a character who's looking back on their life um, in some of that specific summer. Even uh, you and I have talked about, I know you're kind of feeling something, but Summer of 42 is mm-hmm. a very similar way where it's a character who's looking back on, on their life, uh, the specific summer they met this person or these things happen. Um, yeah, it's a time for like, it's a time for growth. Like I said, it's a coming of age thing where you have this time to, if it's summer when you're an adult, time to think back on those formative years, mm-hmm. or if it's it's the time during it where you're kind of unaware of those good days, those best days that are occurring in your life, and the, and you look back on them later as an adult. So it's like it's very kind of core moments, and I think when looking at this genre, because like this genre, like I said, it's very much coming of age. We've talked about this a little bit before, but but these movies a lot of them kind of lived in the eighties. It feels like mm-hmm. like that feels like the prime thing for summer movies. I think that was the big thing about, I guess, stranger things season three, where like it takes place in the summer where that yeah. was like a big kind of thing to do with the eighties, where if it's, if it's uh, American graffiti, we've met that seventies, but, but like, um, uh, dirty dancing, which we're talking, talking about later, summer rental, Caddyshack. These are all vacation. These are all kind of eighties, pieces mm-hmm. of the summer and 80 summer is a very specific thing also when looking at this movie as we talk about later is is richard dreyfus the king of the summer movie <laughs> jaws because, like jaws and this jo- J- oh, jaws and, this and american graffiti and american graffiti and what about bob oh yeah, yeah. richard dreyfus and over three different decades and i i think is is he also in piranha is he also in piranha the the remake the remake of piranha the i have no of piranha. idea i think i think he is which means that would be the 2000s, and I didn't realize going into that that would be 2010. Actually, when I think of carefree summer days, I think of Richard Dreyfus for sure. Richard Dreyfus, <laughs> <laughs> just lounging out in the backyard, barbecue, and thinking about Richard Dreyfus mm-hmm. and his old man look, or his like 40 year old man look in Jaws when he's like 24. <laughs> like, yeah, but yeah, these summer it's very much laid back. As I said, formative years, and with this movie we're talking about today, it kind of encompasses all of that. These kind of growing up, um, and not just like your typical, like, I think sometimes in in these kind of of coming-of-age comedies, especially in the 80s, it was all about sex in some way, Mm -hmm. or like these teen sex comedies, and that will come into play with Stan and me a little bit of how, how it ended up being what it was and how it got made, was that a lot of people were kind of against it because... People are like, where's the where's the young girls these kids are meeting? Where's the like the, the <laughs> first kiss and where's this? What is this like thinking about death and stuff? Why do we want to do that? And so uh, Stand By Me really kind of opened up the almost like adult kid movie, if that makes sense, where it's like mm-hmm. you're gonna be you're gonna be an adult, watch it and enjoy it, but also be a kid, watch it and enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. But exactly. not be not be not not be dumbed down for adult. It's like there's it's it's a lot of kind of adult mature themes that are happening in stand by me mm-hmm. and so stand by me kind of some key players here it's uh directed by rob reiner who it's kind of the beginning of his like massive run rob very few people had had a run like reiner did in the 1980s yeah where you do stand by me the princess bride um well not in the 80s 80s and the 90s stand by me princess bride when harry met sally few good men um misery like it's insane of like how like within a few years he he makes kind of like some stone cold classics mm-hmm. 
in less than a decade. Um, but yeah, Rob Reiner, uh, producer uh, Andy Sh- Andrew Scheinman or Andy Scheinman, uh, writers Bruce A. Evans and Reynald Gideon, uh, and of course Stephen King. We just talked about Stephen King uh, last week with uh, The Shining, and I wondered if coming into this with him giving the rights to this movie, if there was some uh, trepidation, I guess you could say, after The Shining mm-hmm. of how he felt about The Shining, um, how he didn't like it, and if there was worry that that might happen again with Stand By Me. Um, so, so Thomas, what is kind of your history with Stand By Me? Um, I think I told you when you picked it for this month, I, I don't know that I've ever seen Stand By Me all the way from beginning to end. It's just one of those movies that was like... <laughs> It was always on TBS. So like, I know, I know every part of it, but I, yeah. I like when I, um, when I sat down to watch it this time and it opens with that kind of like framing device, I was like, oh yeah, I forgot it ends with a framing device. I don't know that I've ever seen the like opening framing device. It's kind of like league of their own. The first time we watched that for, um, yeah, for the, for the podcast. But yeah. One that was kind of always on the TV. And if it was on, you put it on and left it on uh, very similar to the sandlot as far as like, tbs summer afternoons for me yeah and it's very kind of like i don't know say sequence driven but it's like okay here's when they're hanging out at the junkyard or here's Mm -hmm. when they're they're walking uh when they're trying to cross the trestle or here's when you always got to watch if if you're anywhere close to the trestle yeah to the trestle you have to just watch until it happens yeah so it's like you you kind of it's it's one where like there is a structure to it but it's kind of like you can kind of hop in whenever is the thing. And they, it's like the, they, it's kind of, the sequence are kind of broken up by like always cutting back to like Kiefer and the gang. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, yo, what's going on with these guys, with these older guys? Like they're just this kind of separate plot line. That's going to come to a head at the end. Yep. Um, but yeah, I think this is one that I've watched several times over the years. Um, similar fashion is one that's kind of always on TV. So you kind of turn it on and watch, but I, I feel like I've, I think when we did when we did our thesis film at USC, I watched this once or twice mm. to like get the look. Um, but it's been a few years since I've seen it. But I think because I've always loved Rob Reiner's Rob, Rob Reiner's movies since this or in this period uh, and in this era, I think it's always kind of fascinating to go back and watch this because he ended up like I said doing this run of like very different movies, not just great movies, but very different movies of like right before this doing kind of two really broad comedies with like, this is spinal tap or the Mm -hmm. sure thing. Um, and then doing kind of a princess bride when Harry met Sally misery and, and a few good men, all very different, all very different movies for this, for his career. So it's always kind of interesting looking at stand by me as kind of that breaking out moment for him as a director. Right. Um, and it's always kind of interesting to revisit that. And also just a very short watch. It's, it, it really, kind of flies by like an hour and 28 minutes it's it's very quick um but i've always enjoyed it so let's talk about kind of how this movie gets into production so in 1982 stephen king published different seasons a collection of four novellas uh that had a more serious dramatic tone than his usual horror stories uh one of these novellas would be called the body uh also to to kind of give you a little bit of more trivia with it Two of the other stories in, in the novella, uh, Apt Pupil, which became a movie later on, mm, yes. and also uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Wow. Uh, so really big, 
big kind of period or novella collection from Stephen King here. Um, and so the body was a part of that. And a year later, uh, after the, the, the collection was released, uh, writer and producer Bruce A. Evans gave the book uh, as gave the book as a birthday gift to the wife of his writing partner, Reynald Gideon. Uh, it was around this time the duo was probably writing the John Carpenter film Starman because that came out in '84. Mm. Um, but during this time, after kind of reading that that novella collection, the duo gained an appreciation love for the body, and they would reach out to Stephen King's agent asking for the rights of the story. And King's agent replied that King's terms were a hundred thousand dollars and ten percent of the gross profits, and. Although money, the, the the kind of the fee, the the option or the rights were not an issue, they were a little hesitant about the share that's of the lot, gross that's profits. That's a lot of profits. Yeah, that's a that's ten percent of your your profits, and that was considered kind of excessive. So they thought it was a little too much because the movie was a coming of age story with kid actors. Mm-hmm. There's like no stars to put in that movie. So like, cool, we need to find a director who could help sell this movie, and that's when they went to. Adrian Line. Oh. Which I did not see coming. <laughs> um, and after reading the novella, Line and Adrian Line, who we've talked about previously on the show, I think several times now, it feels like, Line agreed to direct the project. The trio began shopping shopping it around town, and every studio for the most part turned the movie down. Um, when talking to Variety in 2016, I think it was kind of the the tw- or the uh, uh, 30th anniversary of the movie, uh, Evans talked about how difficult it was to pitch this project. He said the consensus was that no one would be interested in a story about four 12-year-old boys on a railroad track. Mm-hmm. It was dark. There was not a girl in it. No one knew how to sell it. Of course, what attracted us to it was that it was a coming-of-age story without girls or buying rubbers or first kisses and all that. It was about kids becoming aware of their own mortality. Finally, Embassy Pictures took on the project. And now Embassy had made such films as The Graduate, The Producers, uh, Escape from from New York, and The Fog from John Carpenter, and This is Spinal Tap from Rob Reiner, and The Sure Thing from Rob Reiner. Hmm. So Embassy talked to Stephen King, Embassy talked King down on his price of $100,000 to $50,000, and we were able to get to a lower percentage of the profits. Evans and Gideon were paid to write the script, which they did in about eight weeks or so, pretty pretty quickly. Um, Embassy felt like the duo needed an experienced producer on their team, and they suggested uh, Andy or Andrew Scheinman uh, to produce it with them. And Embassy was also not willing to pay Adrian Lyons' directing fee because he was so big after Flashdance and some of those and Fatal Attraction mm-hmm. at that point in time. Uh, Gideon and Evans agreed to take a pay cut to keep line on as the director because he was so popular could help bring in a, a <laughs> big crowd with his name. Uh, but line had, was about to finish up directing nine and a half weeks and was apparently incredibly exhausted from it and wanted to take a pretty long vacation, like almost a year vacation of not doing anything. And so that was not going to make him available until spring of 1986. This is when Embassy and team began looking at other directors because they didn't want to wait that long. Uh, that's when they went to director they'd already been working with, as I said, and that was Rob Reiner. It was it was pretty easy decision to, to bring Reiner on because they'd done two of his films, and also Andrew Scheinman was a co-producer on Reiner's last film, The Sure Thing. And Reiner had loved this script, but he had a very difficult time trying to figure out how to crack 
the film's perspective. He he told Variety that he would he drove around LA for four days trying to figure out how to kind of cut, tackle this project. And the thing he soon realized was that the script needed to change its point of view because initially the story's main character was Chris, which is River Phoenix's character. Oh, okay. Um, it was Ryan that said it should be from Gordy's perspective because he's kind of the, like, he's the observer. Mm -hmm. And he thought the observer should be the POV of this. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, he was just, he, but Gordy was just this, like, kid in the gang initially. Um, Reiner said that he related to the character of Gordy more because he was this insecure kid who was trying to please his father, which Reiner said was basically how he was with his father. Carl Reiner. Um, Evans and Gideon were initially hesitant about doing this, but soon realized what Reiner was trying for. Mm -hmm. uh, and in turn, they rewrote it, pushing Chris to this kind of, not secondary role, because I think Chris is still a, like a, a, kind of a big, it's a big part of this movie. Yeah. But not but, the, not uh, the narrator. Not the narrator. It's, kinda, it's, it's like, we'll, we'll talk about it later in the month, but it's, it's like, you know, is the Sandlot not really about Benny the Jet? But you, you can't, yeah, he, like you can't watch it through his eyes. You got to watch it through somebody mm -hmm. who looks up to him. Yeah, exactly. Because you're, yeah, you're, you're building this kind of persona of Chris. This kind of, uh, like he's he's the leader. It's mm -hmm. almost better to to have the the second person, the the kind of the best friend of the leader, to kind of paint this picture of this person. Yeah. And also, Reiner basically kind of said, like, look, we're making the movie about Stephen King as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> like he's like what movies do you what what books do you think gordy goes off and writes he goes and writes stephen king books like is what he's kind of like saying mm -hmm. um and so once they had the idea of changing the script they began casting for the movie and they auditioned 300 boy actors before whittling it down to 70 boy actors which is what reiner and his kind of people saw before finally finding the main four boys now um Rare Phoenix, when he came in and read, he initially read for Gordy mm. before they switched him and made him read for Chris. Yep, that's understandable. Yeah, exactly. Jay O'Connell, who was kind of this young kid, comes in and he recalls how when he was going into the audition room, he was told by someone that he was about to go meet the guy from All in the Family. <laughs> and Jay O'Connell was very excited because he expected to meet Carol O'Connor, who plays Archie, Archie Bunker. Bunker. Yeah. yeah, somebody says <laughs> the guy so, from All in the Family, you think Archie Bunker. Yeah. And he was shocked to walk in and not see Carol O'Connor. <laughs> yeah, he goes, uh, he said before, Reiner says before he walked out, he kind of turned and said, hey, are you that guy from Channel 5? Because uh, that was where the reruns of All in the mm -hmm. Family were at. And Reiner talked about how like just natural Jerry O'Connell was uh, in the audition room. And uh, they liked Wheaton as well because he was kind of this shy young kid that kind of worked for Gordy. And but the hardest part to cast was Teddy and they could not find a kid who could portray the anger they were looking for. Mm -hmm. They even considered switching River Phoenix to that character <laughs> because he was just hitter. because he was just good at everything. They said he yeah. could play literally any of the roles. Um, and then Corey Feldman walked in and they realized kind of how perfect he was for this role. And Feldman said that he 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 related to the character a lot because he had dealt with so much turmoil turmoil and havoc within his kind of upbringing he said he kind of had a very very bad family life i know mm -hmm. later on Feldman, Feldman always said that this was the character he related to the most that he ever played was because he's such a kind of uh, like i mean teddy is a very much 
gone through a lot of traumatic events in his life, yeah. and, and as, as they talk about. And once these kind of four characters were cast, Reiner would then put them all through like two weeks of improv lessons and activities to build their chemistry. They said that like it was essentially Reiner and the four boys just like doing improv games, talking about movies or pop culture, and just like hanging out. And he wanted to do this because Reiner wanted this because he wanted to kind of give build the sense of chemistry so they could actually be seen as friends on camera and yep. he also wanted to do he's like i want to do a lot of long takes i don't want to do like close-ups of the kids so we can get their like line right and kind of piece it together in the editing room i want these wide four shots uh shots of all four characters and it actually feels like they're all friends on this adventure and so that gets done they're gearing up towards filming and then something happens Embassy Pictures, the company that's going to make the movie, is sold to Columbia Pictures. Uh-huh. And, Col- and Columbia plans to shelve the project. Columbia was owned by Coca-Cola at the time because Coca-Cola was getting involved. A lot of big corporations were getting involved with movies after the rise of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So Coke was like, we don't want... Coke and Columbia were like, we don't want to make this movie. It's a coming-of-age story with no stars. Yep. It's like it's just it's not like a teen sex thing. We don't want to do this. We're just here so, for the money, and this does not. We're just here for the money, and this is money. this is not stream money to us. Yep. Um. So with only days before the movie, like it was about to be stopped because Columbia was dropping it, but creator of All in the Family, Norman Lear, stepped in oh. and pay, and paid for the entire budget of the film, which was oh, about man. seven point seven point five million dollars at the time. Um, Alan Horn, who is a future Disney executive, uh, was at was like the financial chief officer, one of the head finance guys at embassies, and he warned Lear about doing this big of a gamble on such a um, kind of not not a not a commercially viable project. And Lear said, I like Rob. I like the script. I like the boys. I guess I'm really exposing was- myself for not having read that Norman Lear autobiography that's sitting on my bookshelf. <laughs> I wonder if he talks about it. But yeah, he basically said, I want this movie to get made. So they went in making this movie with no distribution at this time. Wow. Columbia dropped it. And so it was all on Lear's money this movie was being made. And now with that, let's talk about favorite scenes. Right out of the gate, I just want to say the look of this the, the look of this movie is amazing. Yeah, it's timeless. It very much is. But what what's one of your favorite scenes in this movie um well first off i think we really only get two scenes but um john cusack (laughs) is fantastic in this movie he is great he's He's just everything and you know it's that kind of thing you know we know we're watching the whole movie through gordy's perspective and we know it's all a little kind of like rose tinted glasses or or maybe you know poop tinted glasses and certain aspects of it but um But we we know we're getting Gordy's version of him, and it and it feels too almost too good to be true. You know the the yeah. scene at dinner when they're all asking him all these questions, and he's like, "Did anybody read his story?" And it's like, "Oh, the, this this guy was the best." Especially when yeah. like every other teenager we're presented with in the movie absolutely sucks. <laughs> yeah, absolutely terrible. But yeah, it sets up that that relationship with his brother is kind of. It's it's weirdly how everything comes back to it, because 
a lot of it's like it, it deals with his brother's death. So it's the idea of death is is constantly on Gordy's mind mm. at this time. And I think like he doesn't he doesn't cry at the funeral, and like he so he's he's really dealing with his mortality in a way at this point. And so when this idea of this body comes up to go see this dead body, I don't think he saw his brother his brother's dead body because of his age. I feel mm. like because it was it was it was a car accident, um, it was a jeep accident that he probably would not have been shown his brother. And so there's something almost, I don't know if it's cathartic where he's hoping if he sees this, bo- this body that he can like relate that to his brother mm-hmm. in some way, to give him some but closure. That, to give him some closure. And then you have that kind of um, that flashback with Cusack when he gives him the New York Yankees hat. And that's kind of a little bit that kind of spurs these characters forward at the, when, when, when Kiefer Sutherland stills the Yankees cap yeah. and it's so listening to the kind of um, Reiner and Weed and, and Kiefer talk about that scene. We're like, Oh, what, what happens to that Yankees cap? Like, like he should get his Yankees cap back. And Reiner's like, Oh, he threw that in the garbage when he turned the corner. Cause Kiefer's character does not care. Yeah. He's just out to cause pain. He's just a bully and uh, uh ace is his character but like he but it's like you wonder like what ace, I, I wanted this this time what was ace's relationship with john cusack with um denny mm-hmm. because he makes reference to denny throughout the movie a few times like at one, at, towards the end when it's that gun scene he's like how, there's some some of your brother's common good senses in there i yeah. assume like you're not going to do this i mean I, I i like to think in some way that they're they're kind of like a the, the dark side of what could have happened to Chris and Gordy, you know, if Chris had, yeah. if Gordy, Gordy hadn't really pushed Chris to, you know, come along with him. Yeah. Well, I, I think it is very much like, it is the kind of like warning of what you could be. Cause Chris is always, cause again, his brother, mm-hmm. uh, uh, eyeball chambers <laughs> is, is, is the gang is one of the gang members and is the guy actually helping ACE pick on the kids. Yeah. Like he's watching him, He's watching Ace put his brother down on the ground and threatening to put a cigarette out on his face. Yep. And he has no problem with it. Um. So like that is like this is what these two can become. And I think that's haunting over Chris's mind mm-hmm. the entire movie. He says at the very end, he goes, "I'm never gonna leave this town. Yep. I'm never gonna leave this town because the way he shows it is that like." He he's it's the character that pops in a lot of coming of age movies or a lot of movies in general of like that character that feels like because of where I was born and what family I was born into, I was destined to fail. Yeah. And that's what Chris feels like. He feels like I am destined to fail no matter what I do, no matter how truthful I am, how nice I am, I'm always gonna wind up on the corner or on in the car hitting mailboxes with the baseball bat because there's nothing here for me yeah. and there's no world outside of here for me yeah um which leads and, us to one of the best performances in the movie which is chris's confession about the the lunch money so amazing <laughs> it's like and that and that's the key of that character it's the like i went to these te- this teacher and gave the money back for stealing it and they turned it around on me and still made me the person that was mm-hmm. in trouble and like they used me and that teacher basically takes that money and buys a purse with it. And I'm still blamed for it. Yeah. And like the mo- it's like the, the, the emotion that he has is not just about the milk money. 
it's about it's about him realizing no matter what I do, I am screwed. Yep. And no one's going to help me because I can't trust anyone because no one's going to trust me. Yep. And Phoenix is just like so insanely talented in this movie. Yep. And he was insanely talented in almost every movie he did. But like he's fantastic in this movie. Like he's like we talk about sometimes like when you're walking out of a movie, you're like who like you wonder like who that person was. Mm-hmm. That's very much River Phoenix in this movie. Yeah. Because he's just outstanding in the film. Maybe you could go into the college courses with me. That'll be the day. Why not? You're smart enough. They won't let me. What do you mean? It's the way that people think of my family in this town. It's the way they think of me. I'm just one of those low-life chambers kids. That's not true. Oh, it is. No one even asked me if I took the milk money that time. I just got a three-day vacation. Did you take it? Yeah, I took it. You knew I took it. Teddy knew I took it. Everyone knew I took it. Even Vern knew it, I think. What's another scene that you have? I mean, the railroad tracks. We, we already talked about it, but it is... It's so well done. It is... You know, this is such a just kind of meandering movie. And then right there in the middle, it's not even like the climax of the film. Just right there in the middle, it's like, here's the action of the film. And that let's bring that in here because what what Stephen King was talking about when he was talking about this movie and the and the novella, a lot of the stuff came from his childhood. Mm-hmm. And he says that with the trestle, he goes, That was kind of a rite of passage in his like upbringing. It's to like, oh, you have to walk across the trestle and that's like you're in the group or whatever. Like mm-hmm. that's kind of your thing. It's like a lot of these movies, it's like a lot of this movie is this rite of passage of like the first time you go out with your friends or like to, to leave town, go on this journey together. Right. And the trestle is just an example of one of those rites of passage of like or it's to like go knock on the door of the haunted house or something. Like it's mm-hmm. things like it's Boo Radley. It's it's Jim going to knock on the door of Boo Radley's house. Of like it's this thing you have to do, but with them, what what makes it so like exciting is it's actually a plot point. It's not just a character moment. It's this like we have to get across this trestle to go get to go see the body. Mm-hmm. Like and it and in those walking across the trestle, you see how all those four characters are. It's like the t- people who are kind of the least scared. Is it's Teddy and Chris right. who are up front walking across, no big deal. And uh Vern is always the most petrified character of the four. Yeah. And he's literally crawling across the trestle. And Gordy's someone who can never kind of take initiative for himself and kind of is someone who should be a leader but always sees himself as a follower. Yeah. He's the one in the back just like walking along. Until he's forced to be a leader and get Vern to go, yeah, and and checking Maybe, the rails, you know, he is he he yeah, is the brain. He's checking, yeah, he is the brains the, of the operation. Um, but he's the one who's I think always too looking out for everyone. I think a lot of the time, and the way they shoot that is, I'll tell I'll tell this part. It's it's kind of onset life stuff. But I'll bring it here. Um, but in terms of Reiner's direction, actually, these two previous scenes, I'll say this with the milk money scene and with this scene, Reiner's direction for the milk money scene 
was that Phoenix wasn't capturing the like emotion he was uh, wanting him to. Mm -hmm. And he pulled him aside and he was just like, think of an adult in your life that really kind of like disappointed you and made you, um, who let you down in your life. Like picture that person. Don't, you don't tell me who it is, but picture who that person is and think about them when you're talking about through the scene. And that's what gets him to that kind of level of, emotion this heightened emotion for him and then for the scene when they're the trestle apparently this is the one scene where like the kids could not show any emotion they were just having fun running across the trestle and it's this big shot of this dolly going back and forth mm -hmm. and apparently it's the only time on set where reiner yelled at them <laughs> he's like all these people are out here these these guys are pushing this dolly and they don't want to do it because you that you keep not crying in this scene and like he just starts yelling at them and then they start actually crying because of Reiner's like yelling at them for the first time. He's like, okay, roll it. <laughs> Not expecting them to start crying. And then they do the scene of them like running across. And that's, that's this, that's the one take of them like crying as they're running across and they get done. They just jump into Reiner's like arms. Like, did we do it right? He's like, he's like, yeah, we're not doing that again. He's like, <laughs> I, he goes, I'm sorry, <laughs> but it, it is, it's a very big moment that, I feel like you said it kind of makes the movie. Like it's like, mm -hmm. that's the moment you kind of think of like, if it's coming up, you don't want to kind of steer away. From, you don't want to stop and turn the channel or whatever, or take the DVD out or whatever. You want to watch that scene because it's so important for the story, but also the characters in it. What, how do you feel about the Lardass story? Um, <clears throat> I think it's fun. I think it's, it's, I think it's nice to have a little like where they're like, you know, he's a great storyteller and they can yeah. just tell you, but they, they take some time to show you and i think it's and it's a fun glimpse into you know a young boy's mind like oh puke it's hilarious like <laughs> and it, but all it has a very stephen king quality to yeah, it absolutely and weirdly too another, another thing i thought of this time it has a very big fish quality to it yes definitely Later on, it has this very big fish quality of like it's it's a heightened version of reality mm -hmm. with like some fiction to it it's like this, a twisted southern fairy tale Yes, drinking castor oil to spew uh, whatever pie he's eating, cherry pie or whatever, um, on the whole crowd. Apparently, a real girl uh, threw up on set because of all the the fake throw oh, that was no. going around. It actually prompted her. I would, that, be, being in a, a tent and that happens through that scene would be would be uh, horrendous. Yeah, you really um, got to make sure the fake vomit smells good. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, um, but. What I love about that scene too is the ending when like he finished the story and they're like, "What's the ending? That was that's great." And they're like, "That that is the ending." Yeah. He's like, "Well, that's terrible." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What um, does he do next? Does he go fight with the French Legion? It's like no. Come on, man. <laughs> but you know, you know, as like a writer, that's something that always happens where like someone wants you to like make it, put them in the story in a way. Like, mm -hmm. so, like Corey, like uh, Teddy, like. He wants this adventure in some way because he's always this uh, this kid. He 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 lives on the like his dad stormed the beach of Normandy, and one day he'll be this big this guy who gets to go out of town and live this great adventure. Right, and he wants like all the characters to replicate that in some way because he wants to see himself in them. And when he doesn't see himself in that character, he's like, "This movie, this story kind of sucks." Hey, Gordo, why don't you tell us the story? Uh, I don't know. Oh, come on. Yeah, come on, Gordo. Not one of your horror stories, okay? I don't want to hear no horror stories. I'm not up for that, man. Why don't you tell us one about Sergeant Steele and his babbling leathernecks? 
Well, the one I've been thinking about is kind of different. It's about this Python contest. And the main guy of the story is this fat kid that nobody likes named Davy Hogan. Like Charlie Hogan's brother, if he have one. Good, Vern. Go on, Gordy. Well, this kitty's our age, but he's fat. Real fat. He weighs close to 180, but, you know, it's not his fault. It's his glands. Oh, yeah, my cousin's like that. Sincerely. She weighs over 300 pounds. Supposed to be a high boy gland or something. Well, I don't know about any high boy gland, but what a blimp. No shit. She looks like a Thanksgiving turkey. And you know this one time? Will you shut up, Vern? Yeah, yeah, right. Go on, Gordy. It's a small story. I, I love Dreyfus's narration. Yeah. Like, I think Dreyfus's narration really does, like, is the perfect through line for this movie. Just really, really amazing. Um, and I specifically um, love his ending narration mm-hmm. because it sums up the entire movie. It's it's like, it's he's not just looking back at this um, it's a specific moment in his life he's looking back on, but he's specifically looking back on kind of the end of a specific moment in his life. Mm-hmm. It's right before Labor Day. He's like, when they're coming into town, he has that moment after this big, big a journey and an adventure, and he's like, the town looks smaller to us then. Yep. And it was just two days. The town looks smaller to us as they're walking through, and he ma- he has this great line that I've always kind of thought about. He goes. Friends come in and out of your life like busboys in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about, because he says, basically, like, Teddy, we never saw really again after that after that summer. He went off and did his thing. Vern went off and did his thing. Like, we went into middle school, and we all grew apart. And just a fantastic use of Stand By Me at the very yep. end. Gets me, and, gets me and every the score, time. the score throughout. And the score throughout. It's like, gets me every time where it's just that, like, that static shot at the end where they're just getting in the car, the kids are playing, they're getting in the car and going to like whatever they're going to the pool or the beach or whatever. Um, also, apparently, Drivers and Reiner were like teenage friends. Really? They knew each other since they were 15 years old, apparently, is what Dreyfus said. As time went on, we saw less and less of Teddy and Vern until eventually they became just two more faces in the halls. It happens sometimes. Friends come in and out of your life like busboys in a restaurant. I heard that Vern got married out of high school, had four kids, and is now the forklift operator at the Arsenault Lumberyard. Teddy tried several times to get into the army, but his eyes and his ear kept him out. Last I'd heard, he'd spent some time in jail and was now doing odd jobs around Castle Rock. So, moving on to onset life. The film would start principal photography on June 17th, 1985 in Brownsville, Oregon. Now, Brownsville would stand in for Castle Rock, the fictional town in King's novella. Uh, however, it changed from Castle Rock, or, or Castle Rock, Maine, to Castle Rock, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Castle Rock, Maine is the usual city in King's stories. It seems like a lot of the kids had fun on the set. We'll talk about a specific thing later that you brought to me before the show. But <laughs> a lot of them kind of discuss, like, all the stuff they did. So, um, apparently, the four kids got into a lot of mischief at the hotel, this included throwing like furniture into the pool at one point. Um, they set up video games in the lobby so they could play them for free. At one point, Phoenix got the other boys to unknowingly cover Kiefer Sutherland's car in mud, <laughs> only discovering that it wasn't Kiefer's car. No, no. Uh, yeah. Um, also, Kiefer Sutherland claimed in the interview that one location they were on had a Renaissance fair 
and the cast and crew attended it, and they brought they bought some cookies from the Renaissance Fair. Unfortunately, the cookies turned out to be pot cookies. Oh, no. Uh, Oregon, come on. Pacific Northwest. Two hours later, the crew found Jerry O'Connell crying and high on cookies somewhere in the park <laughs> um, during it. Uh, apparently, it was also just kind of a, a coming-of-age summer for them because I think Feldman, take what you will from this, Feldman had his first taste of alcohol, I think, around this time and had his first kiss. I think River Phoenix lost his virginity while making the movie, they said. Ooh. Like he walked in one time with this big smile on his face after like I guess of meeting a girl somewhere. Um, so yeah. Uh apparently all the kids were terrified of Kiefer Sutherland on set. That's understandable. He kind of he didn't bully them, but he just had this kind of like menacing demeanor while off camera to make them kind of feel scared of him. Mm-hmm. Like Jerry O'Connell. So like he goes, Jerry O'Connell's like, I'm, I was from New York. I was this child or this Hollywood actor. I'd been everywhere. I wasn't afraid of anybody. I was petrified of Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> like he was just like, they were terrified of him. And Reiner's just like, yeah, it's fine because he's such a calm and nice guy. He has very like calm demeanor. And it was funny that they were just so terrified of him as his bully but he was like that was what he what that character was known for he was his bully mm-hmm. and Kiefer tried to kind of kind of replicate that they apparently again it was during the summer so like they for fourth of july apparently like rented a, or bought a bunch of fireworks and lit them off at like uh someone's house at one point because fireworks were legal in oregon which i mean that doesn't stop most people nowadays <laughs> um but it seems like a lot of them were having fun there was apparently um Feldman and Wheaton didn't get along that much. Um, uh, Feldman said that, uh, or, or Wheaton would say that Feldman would pick on him a lot while on set, and that kind of like didn't sit well with Wheaton. Um, and Feldman would say that he would stay in his room, that Wheaton would stay in the room most of the time away from the rest of the kids with his parents. And then you brought some to me today about Wheaton's time on set with his parents and what, and what did you hear about this? Yeah. uh, Will Wheaton just kind of published an autobiography earlier this year. Um, that was basically just like the, you know, his, his parents were the stage parents from hell. It sounds like they, they, on, on several occasions, he had even told them like, I don't know if I want to be an actor and they were both kind of failed actors. And so you just get this kind of like, you've got this shot that I didn't get mentality and um yeah there's a very i think i was i was telling you there's a very moving uh clip of will wheaton going on jerry o'connell's talk show which i didn't know was a thing until this clip came out but um he's talking about what he went through and o'connell gets very emotional and is like i'm so sorry man i should have i should have seen what was happening i should have helped you and will wheaton's like you were younger than me like there's yeah there's no way to know and i i was an actor like i hit it but yeah um, but yeah it you know we 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 hear these stories kind of time and time again about child actors and then it, it's just a shame that, that that had to happen i mean feldman's talked about that famously and infamously about similar things that happened to him as a child mm-hmm. actor um but when discussing that talking about Con- uh, o'connell's reaction it's very i feel like these four guys like st- no matter what had that type of connection as like the four characters in the movie, Mm -hmm. because I've heard several stories specifically about Feldman and Phoenix, um, about how Feldman went into rehab in the eighties 
and got out and then heard about how Phoenix had kind of gone down this path of drugs and alcohol and Feldman kind of reached out to him and talked to him several times about like recovery and mm-hmm. what it's like kind of being in recovery and, and the 12 step process. And, and it seems like they had some sort of like friendship going on, but it's like, yeah, I think that like these four kids, because they were together for so long and say the small town in Oregon or whatever, um, they had to develop some sort of bond that would stay with him. Even like Wheaton says, like he goes, he goes, I'm cordial to, to Feldman with the whole, like him being bullied or whatever by Feldman for a bit. I'm cordial to him. I wish him well. We just don't talk, Mm -hmm. but there's, they, there's still these very important people in their lives. Like Wheaton also, I think talked about how like he was upset with Phoenix for years because of what all, because of him dying so young because of his vices. He's like, he was supposed to be the big guy. Mm -hmm. He was supposed to be the guy out of the four of us that was going to make it. And be the Tom Hanks twenty million dollar movie uh, movie uh, or twenty million dollars a movie basically was what he was going to make, and he kind of went off the deep end basically mm-hmm. and died at a, tra- at a tragic young age, and so yeah, but it seems like besides those things, it was very much almost like coming of age summer for all four of them. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing too, when talking about kind of how they made some changes on set. Um, the big change when the big change they made on set was actually the final scene with the gun. Initially, it was supposed to be Chris that pulls the gun on Ace, but it was Andy Scheiman who suggested, "What if Gordy picks up the gun instead?" Because the whole idea is that it's Gordy's journey. He should probably be the one to pick that mm-hmm. up. Yeah. And they said when 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 Stephen King saw the movie, he goes, "Why didn't I think of that?" <laughs> the Barfarama scene that they do was filmed in Brownsville. Uh, a local bakery was supplied the pies and the extra <laughs> filling, which was mixed with large curd cottage cheese to simulate vomit. Um, the quality of the, the quantity of simulated vomit varied per person from as much as five us gallons to one sixteenth gallons per person, I guess um, for the scene when they're shooting the trestle, mm-hmm. they used four small adult female stunt doubles with cropped hair to look like the four kids as they're going across the trestle and the, and the, and the wide shots. Um, and they use telephoto lens to kind of, um, to compress the, the train and the kids running. So it didn't look like they, it looked like they were being, it looked like they were right in front of the train, mm-hmm. but there was enough distance between them. So yeah, filming would end August, 1985. Um, actually I forgot one thing that I want to bring up. I was going to bring up later from often universe cast, but Richard Dreyfus was not the first person cast for the role of Gordy, adult Gordy. Really? It was a, a an actor by the name of David Dukes who was in he was in Dawson's Creek later on, like as a character actor. I don't know who he played in Dawson's Creek. Oh, interesting. Uh didn't do a lot of big stuff. Mostly TV. He was cast in it, but uh apparently at a certain point Reiner didn't like his voice, is what it was. <laughs> Um, then they went to Michael McKean, um, okay. who was in This Is Final Tap yep. for, um, uh, for Rob Reiner, but then they went, they, they didn't use him and they end up going with Richard Dreyfus to, uh, do narration. And Richard Dreyfus would always ask, when people ask him, were you in the movie? He goes, no, I just did narration for it. And <laughs> I actually forget that he's actually in the movie, yeah. um, for the, the two scenes, um, he's in. So moving on to Aftermath, um, so, as I said earlier, 
Columbia dropped the movie and Norman Lear picked it up and basically paid for the entire budget. So they had no, it was no, it was at no studio at that time. And so basically they began shopping the movie around again in Hollywood. Um, and they went to universal, they went to paramount, everyone was passing on it again. And finally they were like, I guess we'll take it to Columbia just one last shot. Even though they've already passed on it, they literally dropped the movie for us to do. Mm-hmm. And they went and took it to Columbia. And um, it was Mike Ovitz, who was big at CAA, um, who told the guy Columbia uh, guy, McElwain, he's like, look, I got you your job at at, at uh, Columbia. Now, it basically says, you should watch this movie because I got you your job at Columbia. Mm. McElwain took the movie home because he wasn't feeling so good or whatever and he showed it at his house and he brought all the marketing people over and the executives but he also brought his two daughters to watch the movie and about halfway through can you guess who they were in love with the two daughters river phoenix river phoenix and and uh gideon the writer so that's the only way they got distribution was because <laughs> the daughters saw that movie and saw river phoenix if if they didn't it would have just opened like one week in LA and would have gone nowhere else wow. after that. Um, also Reiner would show the movie to Stephen King and he noticed that King was visibly shaking and wasn't speaking after the movie finished. Um, he apparently walked out after the movie was over uh, and came back and told Reiner that was the best adaptation of any of his works. Wow. Uh, and I think with Larry say it's still his favorite movie from one of his original stories. Yeah. I think specifically because it's so tied to his upbringing and his childhood. Yeah. And it's, it's a very well done adaptation. It is. It is. So when the movie gets released, it gets released on August 18th, uh, 1986 and limited release run, I guess probably in Los Angeles um, and those places. And it, it's in 16 theaters. It does okay. It makes like $240,000. Uh, it opens wide at the end of the month in August 22nd at like $3.8 million. But it's like, cool, it wasn't that big of a hit. I think Wheaton talked about how they went to go see it, and it was like a mostly empty theater is what it was. Mm-hmm. And they just said it kept making $3 million every week. And by the end of its run, it made over $50 million at the box office. Okay. Um. So it was a it was pretty much for the seven point five million dollars that Norman Lear spent, it was a good return on investment for it. Definitely. Critics, for the most part, I think liked it as what it was. It's probably it's probably grown more in appreciation over time from critics. Mm-hmm. Um I think some that 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 uh New York Times said that the uh it was a trite narrative and that Reiner's direction was hammy. Okay. That's what it was. Um, but other, other, uh, outlets praise the, 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 the performances of Wheaton and Phoenix specifically, but the whole cast as a whole, but it's gained appeal and acclaim over time. And again, most like this King sets the best thing that he's ever done film wise. That's based off his stuff. Reiner believes that his, it's his fate or Reiner says that his, his best film and his personal favorite film that he ever made. Um, and it's become this cult classic. Mm-hmm. It's very much a staple of a coming of age genre and the summer genre specifically. Like it, it feels like the end of summer by the, I mean, it talks about that where, where it's Labor Day weekend. It's kind of the end of summer 
for these characters. Um, it would actually be nominated for one Oscar for best screenplay adapted from another medium. So best adapted screenplay. Okay. Um, it was nominated against Color of Money, uh, Children of a Lesser God, Crimes of the Heart, and A Room with a View. Wow. A Merchant and Ivory movie. It's a solid year. Solid year. I'd be intrigued to see if you did the Oscars 10 years later or 20 years later, what would win in that that award. I think just based on popularity, Stand By Me is probably the most is, is the most popular movie of that of that kind of five nominees. Um so what worked about this film, Thomas? The cast. I think the cast absolutely works. Um <clears throat> the look of it, like we said, it it, it is yeah. so timeless, that kind of glow to it. You could put it on and like have no idea when it was actually made. You know, it's one mm-hmm. of those movies mm-hmm. that ju- that just so well captures the period it's set in. Yeah. That, that it there's like little to nothing that bleeds through of of, of the actual uh, period it was made in. Yeah, it's very it feels it's late fifties, but it feels late fifties, but could be sixties. It could because again, it's that small town vibe mm-hmm. that in some cases, no matter what era you're in with a small town, it's always going to feel and look the same. Yep. Like Brownsville, Oregon. I, you guys can t- tell us if, if I'm wrong. <laughs> a lot of that probably looks the same. As it was then, like I know you'll drive through towns in the south or really just any state, you just wind up on this town. And you're like, cool, this came from the 1970s. I think there's a there a town near you. You said in, in South Carolina where like it's basically hasn't changed since the 1980s. Like the look of it. Oh yeah, most of them. Yeah, <laughs> most of them. <laughs> I, yeah, I was driving like, in South Alabama one time, and I was like, I just walked, I just drove through a time warp. Mm-hmm. Like it's just the the buildings are like nothing. Nothing has been built there in decades. Um, so yeah, but the look of it, I think the script is good. I think for, I think it knows what it is. I think, I think Reiner making the change to it be Gordy's perspective was kind of ingenious. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's so simple. You're shocked. They didn't, it wasn't in there from the beginning. Yeah. It's like that character is like, apparently at the DNA of it is the observer of this gang. He should be the one telling the story. Mm-hmm. And that's a great, that's a great, uh, decision from Reiner. And then, the writers to realize kind of this is the correct way of doing it. Um, did anything not work about this movie? Um, I'm, that's, that, that's tough to say. It's that's, that's a really tough call. I think, you know, I, I would say that I think the parents are, are the adults yeah, are kind of say painted <laughs> in too broad of a light, but you're also seeing it from the point of view of a kid. Like it, that's, that's yeah. what you think about your parents when you're that age. Yeah, I was I was sitting there when I asked. That, I was like, "What? I was like, is anything wrong with this movie?" And they go, "Well, the the, the parents are kind of over the top. Like yeah. it's like it's the, the, like, the dad hoeing and 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 putting out the laundry and like basically catatonic." Yeah, they really are. And and granted, they've gone through such a tragic event, mm-hmm. but for it to be like the basically the the dad to say the wrong kid died yeah. essentially. Yeah, like straight to out Gordy of, straight out Walk of hard. Like it's just like wrong kid died. Like it's very much like, and then he's like also like I don't want you hanging out with those friends of yours or whatever. Like he basically is like he's the one that drops in the milk money thing at the beginning mm-hmm. of it. Like your Chris is a thief. He goes, it's a thief and two thieves is what he says. Um, and Gordy is kind of the, and when you look at it, Gordy is kind of the the like the nice kid, like the the smart kid who's he's bright. But he's paired up with this guy who's seen as this thief, and you have someone like Teddy, who's kind of a kind of a crazy kid. 
Like he he's very much an angry, yep. like on edge kid. Yep. And Vern Vern's just kind of a a nerd to some extent. <laughs> like not not in like appearance, but like just he's he's he seems like he's a guy who wants to please and he wants to be liked by people is the thing. Yeah. But he's he's scared. Um but yeah, I think the parents are very much very much that or that feels a little a little too much in those scenes that we that we go to. I may because too when comparing it comparing it to John Cusack stuff where he's so warm and loving mm-hmm. and the parents just like could give a crap about yeah. their kids. It feels like oh wait, the mom's not as bad because the mom's in that in that in that dinner scene she's just like oh what's up with your girl and the dad's like we don't need to be focused on girls we need to be focused on football. Now he's like, talking about stories. You got him started. Yeah, that's about stories. Girls and stories. What's going on here? Um, but also still relatable. Mm-hmm. That's very it's it's in certain areas of the country. In certain towns, like it's like that is very very much put upon the son or the or the the child to be good at the sport or be good at this and not to focus on these distractions like that is. But anyway, yeah. Um, on the universe cast, I talked about David Dukes and Michael McKean for the narrator role. Um, so I found two names for kids that auditioned: Sean Astin, of course, audition. Would he be a Gordy or would he be a Vern? Um, he'd probably be a Gordy at that at that point. I mean, at that point yeah. in time, yeah. Uh, here's someone that auditioned for Chris. His name is Ethan Hawke. Oh wow, would have been great. I'm sure. At, I mean, you could see Ethan. I mean, man, that's a that would have been an interesting movie. Ethan Hawke and River Phoenix in the '90s mm-hmm. would have been a good pairing of of people. Um, but you, I could see Ethan Hawke being that coming off of Explorers. I think is what it is. Around that time, he could he could be kind of the the brooding young kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, um, film facts. So a few things I found uh, during that kind of a uh, uh, oral history of of Stand, Stand by Me and Variety. Uh, apparently, Drew O'Connell talked about how he found out later after he began dating Rebecca Romaine, who we would later marry, mm-hmm. that she was a massive fan of Stand by Me. <laughs> Um, he goes, he's like, she's way out of my league, a million times out of my league, and about three months in the dating, uh, I go up to meet like her high school friends or whatever, and she's like, We get a little drunk, and her high school best friend best friend said to me, You know Stand By Me is her favorite movie of all time, right? <laughs> and he's like, What are you talking about? And he's they're like, She has like posters of you in her oh room or her, uh, growing up. And he's just like, What? Yeah, he, 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 I guess that was their big big kind of focus. Um <laughs> Also, too, the movie essentially, like I said, it pretty much made Rob Reiner at that point in time mm-hmm. with this and then follow up with Princess Bride. Uh, he would later create his production company with Andrew Scheinman, uh, Castle Rock Entertainment, named after the town uh, in this in this movie and also Stephen King's um, Stephen King's fictional town. Alan Horn, who is at Di- who's the the uh, C- who is the CCO, a, cre- a chief creative officer at Disney for a bit. Um, he was also part of Castle Rock. Castle Rock did a lot of things through Reiner. Its biggest kind of uh, title that was involved that they did was Seinfeld. They mm-hmm. were the people behind Seinfeld that distributed and produced the show. Um, so yeah, so let's move on to awards. Um. The Beatrice Strait Award, actor, actress on the scenes that kills it. I think we kind of know who this is. I think you kind of t- maybe I'm not. John Cusack. Wrong. John Cusack, yes. I thought we tipped it off early about John <laughs> Cusack. 
So let's let's talk about John Cusack, like because this is a very different role for him at this point in time. Because he's also at this point known for like he's not that big of a star yet. He's done a few movies. The Sure Thing is probably his biggest movie where he's actually a star. Uh, he's done Better Off Dead. He's a very comedic actor mm-hmm. at this point in time, and this is a very different role for him and he handles it very well but kind of becomes a little bit of his like bread and butter it feels like this kind of i don't know this feels almost like an eight man out type role yeah that he would later do mm-hmm. um but he's really good in this period i think and so he's really good in these two scenes yeah i think he i think he really fits the air the era he's he does have like a as much as a lot of people think he kind of captured the like teen 80s he does he himself has like a, a timelessness to him that mm-hmm. that is make some work here and like you said make some work on and uh i man out but um yeah yeah and he's just so warm and like we said it might be a little heightened really by is. how yeah insanely cold the parents are but it, it works yeah yeah his hugs his hugs very heightened where he's just like gives him like this really big mm-hmm. hug and you're just kind of like is this just gordy's mind basically of like what he thinks his brother was like for him yeah um but cusack does it incredibly well I think what's his big breakout at this point? Cause like, I wonder if like it was as big of a deal to see John Cusack in that role as it is like seeing John Cusack in that role. Now, I guess say anything's probably his yeah. big, his big thing. Cause. Oh yeah. I forget. He's just like an angry messenger in broadcast news. Remember that he's like, it's one scene oh, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So he really hasn't any, yeah, so eight men out 88 and say anything in 89. That's kind of his big, thing and then the grifters in 90 so that's kind of his big little run so he's not john cusack yet even though he's done movies but better off dead i don't think was a was a hit at all maybe maybe it was um yeah it made a little bit of money but very much it's probably more beloved now than it was when it came out there'd be some scouts at the game tomorrow i don't know pop dad can i have the potatoes that's what I hear, son. Are you going to see Jane after the game? I think she's a lovely girl. Dad, can you please have the potatoes? Dorothy, don't talk to the boy about girls. Dad. You shouldn't be thinking about girls. This is the biggest game of his life. Dennis, when you're out there tomorrow. Pop, did you read the story that Gordy wrote? Gordy wrote a story. It was really good. What did you write, sweetheart? Now, see, that's what I'm talking about. Football takes concentration. You start in on the girls, and his mind's all over the place. All right, the Annie Potts X Factor Award, supporting actor actresses the most memorable in this movie. How do how do we define this? What do you? I know. <laughs> I I think the kids. Mm, I think you do you do you could do three of the kids. I think Gordy's the only one that considered lead because Reiner did it from his perspective. Mm-hmm. I think everyone else is supporting. Okay, well, if that's if that's the case, then then River Phoenix is okay. I think the the clear answer. I agree with that. <laughs> he, he's he's just so phenomenal. I mean, like it, when you go back and look at Phoenix, like he's great in this movie. He's great in Running on Empty, um, uh, My Own Private Idaho. Like I love him in Sneakers. Mm-hmm. I think Sneakers is one of the one of the most weird cast ever created for a film that yet works beautifully. Um, with him, Sidney Poitier, Robert Redford, Dan Aykroyd, and David Strathairn. Mm-hmm. It's insane how that who that who's in that cast and how they work so well together. But he he is phenomenal. Um, 
if you had to pick a runner up, who would it be? Is it Kiefer or is it someone else? Um, or is it one of the kids? It's probably. I I honestly I'd give it to Jerry O'Connell, just Jerry because. Okay. This might be the best performance Jerry O'Connell ever gave in his career. No. Scream, offense. scream too, scream buddy. Too. I Come on. Like, <laughs> I like Jerry O'Connell as a person. I'm just you know he he he's got a great personality, but he's kind of built himself off of his personality. Him him and Can't Hardly Wait's also really good. You gotta sure. admit him him is the dude like. Yo, she's still asking, or or is she you still dating that girl <laughs> or whatever? You still you still dating her? Wearing like or or bring flip yeah. or was it bring flip flops or whatever? Like, don't to the dump your high school showers. girlfriend, man. Don't do it. <laughs> I think he's so great in that movie. Anyway, I think all the kids are great. So you would you would say O'Connell as as a backup? Yeah, I might go Feldman. I really like Feldman as the as the backup. He he's just but I I get your 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 view on O'Connell. Um. Feldman just had some has some fun lines is mm-hmm. the thing, um, and he's just dealing with so much, he really is dealing with so much anger, and that's a hard thing to do. Where like, as a child actor to portray anger mm-hmm. and not seem like a bratty kid, that's a very difficult thing. Yeah, agree. And I think Feldman does it well. Um, but any, but River Phoenix, any any last words, River Phoenix? Before we move on to no, the next just, award. You know, an, an absolute star making turn. You could be a real writer someday, Gordy. Fuck writing. I don't want to be a writer. It's stupid. It's a stupid waste of time. That's your dad talking. Bullshit. Bull true. I know how your dad feels about you. He doesn't give a shit about you. Danny was the one he cared about. And don't try to tell me different. You're just a kid, Gordy. Oh, gee, thanks, Dad. Wish the hell I was your dad. You wouldn't be going around talking about taking these stupid shop courses if I was. It's like God gave you something, man. All those stories that you can make up. And he said, this is what we got for you, kid. Try not to lose it. But kids lose everything unless there's someone there to look out for them. And if your parents are too fucked up to do it, then maybe I should. The Gene Hagman MVP Award. Person who carries the movie, director, actor, etc. This is a tough one. Is it is is it Will Wheaton? Ah, is I it, don't know. Is it Rob Reiner? Is it Stephen? Is King? it Stephen King? That was my question. Is it Stephen King? I know he's not the writer of this, but it it feels very Stephen King. Yeah. Like it's in the essence of the of the novel. Um, but I also think Reiner was able to pull off or was able to get four great actors to pull off great performances mm-hmm. and how he smartly handled the actors for the most part, like the whole two weeks beforehand, let them get to know each other. And to like basically say like, cause there was one scene he talked, they talked about how it was the scene at the, at the junkyard mm-hmm. where they were shooting the scene. Cause he always shoots everything in wides. And he said how one of the, um, I can't remember which actor, but one of the actors was just kind of like standing there and he was just like, no, like what, like, what are you, you should be doing something. He's like, well, I don't have any lines. And he's like, yeah, but that's your friend that's being, like, chased by a dog. Yeah. You should probably do something. Like, how, how would you react if one of your best friends being chased by a dog? You want to get them over the fence. And so I think he he handled four, act, four young child actors incredibly well, mm-hmm. which you... Having one child actor is a difficult yes. is a difficulty. Having four child actors and no adults to bounce off of, yep. that's a very hard hard thing to do as a director. 
I think that was my pitch for, for Rob Reiner on the, <laughs> on the MVP award. What are your thoughts? Um, I'll back that. I, I think it's got a great look okay. to it. I, I'm, I'm one who loves Rob Reiner. He, he's someone who est- <clears throat> established himself so firmly as a filmmaker that when like the, the like who's the best actor turned filmmaker debate comes up, I always forget. Everyone forget yeah. Rob Reiner. Yeah. I always forget I agree that, that he was an actor. Yeah. And looking at yeah, Thomas Del Thomas Del Ruth shot the movie. Also shot the Breakfast Club. No. And the Running Man. Very different movies. Uh very different movies. But he was just he was someone who was experimenting in so many different forms of comedy in the eighties. And and especially in in a time like you were saying, this the studio's like, what is this? What is this? This is not a sex romp. Like the, the theaters were so dominated by like teen comedies and sex romps, it was like good on him for trying to do, you know the jerk and and spinal tap and this and princess bride well, that, was Carl, that was carl reiner the, the jerk that was his dad the ah. jerk <laughs> take that out that's the nyquil talking <laughs> but for 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 him to experiment with like different forms and different styles of comedy yeah. is just kind of insane well, like even so even like the sure thing is is like the movie he made right before this that's a teen sex comedy mm-hmm. that's basically have you seen the sure thing i have not Okay, the sure thing is basically like it's John Cusack, um, uh, who is like just a college guy, kind of kind of a slob, and he pairs up with this like Ivy Leaguer girl, and they're going going home for like Christmas break. It's not I'll be home for Christmas, John Taylor Thomas, but it's not far off. <laughs> but he basically he wants to get to uh gets to meet up with this girl played by uh um oh gosh Nicolette, Nicolette Sheridan. Okay, and yeah. she's the sure she's the sure thing like if you go up with her like you'll you'll be able to have sex through basically it's very much like she's waiting for me i have to go see this very hot young woman and it's this teen sex but it's 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 somewhat kind of nice because it's like it's him and uh daphne uh sunega mm-hmm. who was in a uh, space balls um they're kind of, they have like some good chemistry as they're going across country for Christmas break. Yeah. But he's basically, it's this te- he's thinking about going to have sex with this girl. And after doing that, he does stand by me a year later, very different, but two, but two comedies in a way, but two different types of comedies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you do when Harry met Sally and then you do, um, the princess bride, like all different forms, like you're saying of, comedy yeah but they all have heart is kind of the thing and that's what kind of makes rob bryant kind of stand apart from the other comedian comedy directors of time or a lot of them at least it feels like all of them had some sort of heart to them mm-hmm. um and that's apparent here i think that's what makes those movies that he made in that period so memorable and beloved is because of the heart they had because i think also too he talked about this at one point is that stand by me is his first like really personal film mm-hmm. and i think at that point he they were very personal movies for him if it's when harry met, met sally being about like him even though he didn't write it uh he didn't get he was in the credit screenplay writer that's about like his divorce or whatever and him trying to like have a life find love again after being in divorce right. they're all very personal stories and i think it starts off here with stand by me again long pitch for rob reiner's mvp <laughs> so that, i think he's one um but will whedon and Stephen King are good kind of shout outs as backups if need be. I know the back Harlow Road. It comes to a dead end by the Royal River. The train tracks are right there. Me and my dad used to fish for Cossies out there. Jesus Christ, man. If they would have known you were under there, they would have killed you. Could he have gotten all the way from Chamberlain to Harlow? That's really far. Sure. 
He must have started walking on the train tracks and just followed them the whole way. Yeah. Yeah, right. And then after dark, train must have come along and fell smacko. Yeah. Hey. Hey, you guys. I bet you anything that if we find him, we'll get our pictures in the paper. Yeah, yeah, we can even be on TV. Sure. We'll be heroes. Yeah. I don't know. Billy will know or I found out. He's not going to care. Because it's going to be us guys that find him, not Billy and Charlie Hogan in the boosted car. They'll probably pin a medal on you, Vern. Yeah, you think so? Anyway, okay, final questions, Toms. Whew. Um, if this film was remade today, which is probably difficult because we're, we're doing kid actors, so maybe you can do some other characters, who would you cast in this movie? Oh, man, I don't know any kid. Those Stranger Things kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, funny you say that. When they auditioned for Stranger Things, they had them read scenes from Stand By Me. Okay. The kids did. I don't, I don't really know anybody younger than them, and they're already, like, teenagers. Okay, who would you cast as John Cusack? Or is that also still too young? Hmm. He's, like, he's 19 at this point in time. He's 19. Who's, who's, who's around in 19 right now? I have no clue. <laughs> who the teens are these days? Yeah, who, who's, who's the key for settling character? Hold on, I'm going to find this out. Is Cooper Hoffman John Cusack's character? Cooper Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman's kid. Oh, 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 oh. Pizza. Yeah, yeah, I like him. I think I think he played John Cusack's character. Yeah, I think he's good for that. Um, that's that's probably it. That's probably all I have. <laughs> for, uh, um, you're right. I don't know many kids. Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm blanking on on all the kid actors. We might cut this section. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, you know what? I, I want to see because we don't know this. I want to hear from you all. You know what? Email us at sendationpodcast.gmail.com if you have actors you think would be great for the kids in Stand By Me because we don't know and I don't follow kids TV or kids movies. So feel free to give us your <laughs> suggestions on that one. I apologize. Um, all right. Does this film fit with any other genres besides the summer genre? Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely a coming of age uh, film. Mm-hmm. Um Small town, a small town film. A small town drama, I would say. Yeah. Road trip movie? Would you yeah. say road trip? I would say it's a road trip yeah, movie. I think it counts. Here's a question. Well, this is this is, this is a very separate question. They they pose the idea that the boy who dies, that get the, the body they find, that he was hit by the train. Is that what you think happened to him? Mm-hmm. He got hit by a train and just fell on the road. Okay. Yeah, that's what I've, I've just always assumed. Just want to see. Didn't want to know if there was like a murder mystery that was involved in this that we need to figure out. I don't know. Um but okay. Um how does this film fit with the summer genre? Um, I think it really sets a lot of the the molds. I think it's really kind of the a lot of the films that come after it, um, like we said, Now and Then, uh, Sandlot, are kind of these like, oh, looking back on the golden days, uh, friendship, companionship movies, which is, this is, this really, I mean, it, and, you know, we've talked about some before that, but I think this one was the first one to come around in like the cable era and, and become this like cemented part of like everyone's childhood with like home video and, and, and the way it was coming up then it just kind of, just kind of hit at the right time. No, I agree. I think it kind of, like I said, establishes kind of all those things about a coming of age summer movie. That's not about teen sex or whatever. It's, it's about kind of these, as earlier in the, in the show, it's like, it's an adult kids movie in a way. Yeah. It's a movie that adults can look back on and watch as like a nostalgic piece, a nostalgic piece in some way, but also as timeless as we've been saying for younger kids that are watching it. Yep. Um, all right. So 
again, this month we were talking about summer movies, and I think that's the last we're going to talk about Stand By Me for right now, at least, kind of going back into it. Um, but the rest of the month we're talking about The Sandlot, Dirty Dancing is going to be the last episode of the month. But what is next week, Thomas? Everybody wants some! Exclamation point, exclamation point. Is it two or is and it three? It, it, I, I, oh, you, you're the one that loves the movie as much. <laughs> you shouldn't. Is it two or one? Is it uh, Richard Linklater's spiritual sequel to Dazed and Confused. Yeah, we've talked about this briefly a little bit on our Richard Linklater episode way back when, but Thomas really wants to discuss it, um, and I'm totally fine with discussing it. I we I think we both have a lot to say on the movie, mm-hmm. and I think it's kind of a, a good kind of modern day, even though it's not take place in, it doesn't take place in modern day, but a modern day summer movie that kind of hits all the the tropes and the things that we love about a summer movie. Yep. yep. Um, it's gonna be fun. I hopefully Thomas is feeling better. Yeah. By the time we do it, um, planning on it. So, planning on it, he's gonna force himself to be better for everybody who wants some. Um, so yeah, that's on Stand by Me. Um, if you have any questions uh, for Thomas and me, feel free to contact us at sendationpodcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments, or even kind words. Uh, if you're a new listener or a fan of the show, and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us, be sure to do so uh, to stay up to all of our new podcast episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcasts. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Take pity upon me. I, I, I brought myself <laughs> here to give you content. Give me five stars, please. I'm playing. I'm playing that card. He literally did it. He was just like, for us to stay on schedule. Yep. We'll record tonight. <laughs> I can't let them down. <laughs> and and finally, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me, even in sickness. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. Hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.